Good morning, everybody. Y'all there? Morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the book of Genesis, chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles open this morning, I want you to follow with me as I read it out loud, and you can certainly follow it on the screens. And uh, I'll be using today the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I think is the same as you have in the pews there in front of you. You can follow along certainly with that as well. The message this morning is basically a, a statement of sorts of a view of the whole Bible, the whole storyline of Scripture. Now, when I first announced this text some time ago and I was preaching on this passage, somebody said, Preacher, you mean you're going to start in Genesis and go throughout the whole Bible? And I said, Yep, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and they said, That's going to be a long sermon. I said, Well, I'm just going to hit the highlights. So we're not going to actually go through every book of the Bible, but I want to share with you this morning an overview of the message of the Bible, what the Bible is really all about. And if you want to follow along in the sermon notes, you'll see the highlights through the topics, the major points that I make there. And uh, hopefully the Lord will use this to be able to put everything in the Bible on a grid and you'll be able to see how it fits into the overall story of God's Word. So let's start our reading in Genesis chapter 1, uh, beginning uh, chapter 3, rather, beginning in verse 1, and we're going through verse 19. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, But about the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you won't die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, She took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The one you gave to be with me, she gave me some from it, from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. 
He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will dominate you. And he said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you were dust, and you will return to dust. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me, if you will. Our Father, as we look to your word this morning, we pray that you'll give us not only wisdom, but also understanding to know how this passage relates to the rest of Scripture and how it relates to our lives day by day. We pray that you indeed will be our teacher. We pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a storyline that goes through the whole Bible, and basically, this is it. Adam had it, Adam lost it, and then Adam was able to get it back again. Mankind had it. Now, what is the it? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But then we see in this text how he lost it. And for the rest of Scripture... The Bible tells us how God made a way for mankind to get it back again. Okay? Do like this if you got that, right? Very simple storyline, isn't it? You could write a novel about that. In fact, most novels are written on a similar outline to that. So what is it that Adam had that he lost that God went to such great pain and trouble for mankind? to be able to get it back. Well, let me give you five things that the Bible teaches, and I think these are very clear in this text, that Adam had before the fall. The first thing Adam had was full and open fellowship with God. In fact, the indication is that in the cool of the day, during the time of the afternoon, late afternoon, early evening breezes, Adam and God and Eve had a special time of communication where they walked and they talked together. That's kind of a nice scenario, isn't it? You have an afternoon, late afternoon, early evening walk, and you talk about the affairs of the day, and you talk about the plans for the next day, and you talk about life, and you talk about the issues, and you just have sweet communion and sweet fellowship. And at this point in time, however long it may have been, it it could have been a few days, but I have the idea that it was probably for several years, maybe even decades or longer in time. And so Adam and Eve had this openness, this fullness, this brightness in communication with God. But something happened. The second thing they had was true love and true trust. True love and true trust. Now here's the Here's the idea behind that. Only those people that you truly love are you willing to fully trust. You understand that? In other words, there are only a few people in our lives that we're willing to truly trust our lives to, regardless of what the situation may be. One of those for me is my wife. I mean, I know 
you know, she's got my back. I know that, that she can be trusted, whatever the circumstance, to work on my best interest. I know that's true also of my sons. I think it might be true of my grandchildren, but sometimes they like to play pranks on me, so I'm not sure about that. They, they don't understand just yet. But here was Adam and Eve in that relationship with God where they fully trusted God, or it seemed to be that way, and they knew he had their backs, and so there was this sweetness in communion and fellowship and this idea of trust. The third thing they had was moral innocence, moral innocence. One of the things that makes a person truly human is that they have a moral responsibility. That is, they have to give answer. We have to give answer to God for how we live. We have a moral code by which we live. And so during this time, during the time before the fall, Adam and Eve had no sin. They knew nothing about guilt. And they knew nothing about blaming somebody else for why they did something they shouldn't do. And the reason was they'd never sinned. Sometimes I look at small children and I think about how innocent they are of what is going on in our world and of what the real issues of life are. And sometimes I think, wouldn't it be nice to be that innocent again? But we know that there will come a day in their lives when they will cross the line and they will come morally guilty because of their sins. The Bible says that we are born with a sinful nature. The Bible says that all of us are born sinners. Though we may not have sinned yet as little children, that day inevitably will come. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But up until this time, Adam and Eve lived in complete innocence, morally speaking. The fourth thing the Bible teaches us and shows us they had was real freedom. They could choose to do anything they chose they wanted to do, and there was no prohibition except for one thing. Now, how would you like to be able to drive down the highway like that? I mean, the only thing that bothers me when I get on the highway to drive someplace are the other drivers. If it wasn't for any other driver on the highway, I would have a great time driving anywhere. But you know, sometimes people go out in front of you and slow down, or sometimes they pull out unexpectedly or slow down when they shouldn't. And, you know, I, I sometimes feel like you just want to bump them out of the way. But we don't have the freedom to do that, do we? We don't. I mean, there are laws. And there are so many circumstances in life. There are so many issues of life that we have to be considerate of. But in their day and in their time before the sin, they had freedom to do anything, to eat anything except that one fruit from that one tree, and they could just simply do and live and act as they pleased. Sometimes people think it's real freedom to be able to do that, and yet nobody has been able to come to that place. In fact, many politicians get into trouble because they try to live that way and do whatever they want to do, and it breaks the law, and sooner or later it catches up with them. Here's the fifth thing. This is the real essence of what they had that they lost. It was the presence of God in man. The presence of God in man. The Bible says in Colossians 1.27 that the glory of God is that God has come to live in us. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you only knew who it was asking for you from water, you would ask me for living water because once you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. What was he talking about? He was talking about the presence of his Holy Spirit. 
the essence of what it really means to be saved, the essence of what it really means to be a Christian, to have eternal life, is that the life of God has come to dwell within your human life. And so that's what was wrong when Adam and Eve sinned. They had this relationship. They had this ability of freedom. They had this moral innocence. And God dwelt with them and in them. They had it. And life was great and beautiful until that day when sin came. And it was not as though they weren't warned. It was not as though they didn't know anything better. But it was that they chose they made a decision, they used their moral option, and they went outside the bounds of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So let's ask the next question, where did it come from? How did they have this special relationship? How did they have this special ability? Well, the first thing is God created man in his own image. I'm sure many people have tried to figure out what exactly that means. Some people say, well, that must be physical image. Is that the way it is? Is, that, is it that we physically look like God? The Bible tells us that God is spirit and not flesh and blood. God may take on the appearance of flesh and blood. There are times in Scripture where God visibly, physically appeared as a man on earth or as an angel on earth. But in all reality, God is not a physical being. He is a spiritual being. And that's the key of understanding being made in the image of God. You see, unlike any other creature or living thing that God made, man is the highest order of creation in that we have a spiritual capacity to know God and to relate to God. I had a friend one time who had a dog that was trained to do certain things. And one of the things the dog was trained to do was to kind of put his paws together and bow his head. And the friend said, well, he's praying now. Well, do you really believe that dog was praying? I don't. I believe the dog knew that if he did this, he'd get some treat. And if he didn't do it well, he might get smacked. And so it was treat right and smack wrong, and that's all it was. It wasn't prayer. See, animals do not have a spiritual relationship to God, though I'm sure God loves all of his critters and creatures. And so man has been highly exalted in the sense that he has the capacity to know God, to be inhabited by God, and he is a special act of God's creation. Above all creation, he is a spiritual being, and as a spiritual being, he has a moral responsibility. So the second thing is, he is a spiritual being, and then he has a moral responsibility. So God made man a unique critter, more like himself than anyone else or anything else that he had made. Now, you can look at it from this standpoint, if you will. There are plants, and there are animals, and there are humans. And uh, without many exceptions, and sometimes these exceptions are hard to come by, every living thing falls into one of these three categories, plants, animals, or humans. The plant world has been given a body. The animal kingdom has been given a body and a soul. But only man has been given body, soul, and spirit. Now, I believe animals have soul. If you don't believe animals have a soul, you take a stick and poke it in a wasp nest and just hang around for a few minutes, 
and you'll discover the soul of a wasp in his anger. I don't recommend that, by the way, but that could prove the soulishness of the wasp. And so what happened when man sinned that made him lose it? He had these wonderful privileges. He's been put in a high place. Adam and Eve enjoyed the ultimate in human privilege, in human life, and they lost it. Well, here are four things that happened. Number one, they failed to walk by faith. They failed to walk by faith. Now, you have to understand what faith is to get this. Faith is hearing God speak and acting on what God says. In the little book of James, in our New Testament, he describes it pretty well. He says, faith without works is dead being alone. You can sit in your chair and say all day long, I have faith, but you will not prove your faith until you act on what you believe or what you say you believe. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, you might mark that verse and keep it in mind. But in Genesis 2, 17, God said to Adam, here is one tree in the garden whose fruit you're not supposed to eat from, and the day you eat from that tree, you will die. That was God's word. Adam heard it. He passed it on to his wife. But the day came that we read about in Genesis 3 when they listened to the voice of the serpent and they decided, okay, God said this and the serpent says this, which one shall we believe? Which one shall we obey? And instead of having faith that God's word was true, instead of trusting what God said, they believed a lie and they sinned. When you walk by faith, it simply means that you are walking according to what God has said. You're living according to God's word. You're living according to what you, know, you believe and you know is the right thing to do. And that's what faith is all about. You're not a person of faith because you go to church. You're not a person of faith because you claim to be a Christian. You are a person of faith when you walk by, live by your life according to what God says. And that's the definition of faith. And so that was one of the reasons they failed. That was the primary reason. That was the chief reason. They failed to obey what God said. They lost their privileges with God. They lost their home in the garden. They lost the special relationship that God had given to them, and it would never again be the same. Adam and Eve had enmity, in a sense, between them and that her allegiance was to be for him, and yet he was to rule over her. And Adam, instead of going out and picking the fruit that he wanted to eat, had to toil by labor to make a living out of the ground. And, of course, the serpent was crushed and was cursed, and the future was given. Number two, it was a consequence of their sin, their sin. And not only did this sin have an immediate consequence of having to leave the garden and their relationship with God being broken, it had the the essence that they would one day physically die. Ask yourself the question, if Genesis 2.17 says, the day you eat from this fruit you'll die, they ate from the fruit on that day, did they die? That day. Well, obviously they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. And the Spirit of God that dwelled in Adam and Eve left them. 
And instantly when they sinned and the Spirit of God left them, they knew for the first time in their lives what it was like to feel guilty. And this guilt produced fear, fear of God, fear of His presence, fear of His judgment, and rightly so. And so they tried to cover it themselves, and they were inadequate in doing that. And they tried to hide from God because they were embarrassed for God to see them. And so God finally sought them out. Adam, where are you? Do you think God didn't know where they were? Well, he knew. He knew. And so when he came to them and spoke to them and they confessed their sin, the first thing Adam made was an excuse. God, it wasn't my fault. It was, it was this woman you gave me right here. It was her fault. And then she said, oh, hey, God, it wasn't my fault. It was this snake. That's, that's whose fault it was. And then finally she said, we were deceived. We believed a lie instead of the truth. You see, that's the tactic that the enemy still uses today. He wants us to believe lies instead of the truth. And because we believe a lie instead of the truth, we act against the will of God. We walk out of faith. We disobey the word of God and we commit sin. Here's the third thing that happened. Without their former relationship with God, they lost it. They lost it and life was completely different. And all sorts of sin and ugliness followed after that. And finally, the Bible says, this is number four in your notes, by Noah's day, it was as bad as it could be. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So here's the picture. Adam and Eve had it, but they lost it. Now, you say, well, where does that leave me? Well, you know, we're all related to Adam and Eve. We all have inherited the sin nature from Adam and Eve. And therefore, we, as creatures that God made, have to find it. Adam and Eve lost it. Now it's up to us. No, not really up to us. It's up to God to make a way for us to get it back again. And so beginning after the flood, God started a plan. God had it in mind already, should this be the case. God started a plan and created a scenario by which man could get back what Adam lost. Man could find again, could receive again that great blessing of intimacy with God and fellowship with God and the presence of God in us but he had to do it his way over a course of many, many years. So let's look at this last part of the message. How did God do this? How did God find a way? How did God make a way for man to get it back again? First of all, let's ask this question, why would God do that? You see, in Genesis 6, God said, I'm, I'm tired of this mess. I'm just really discouraged that I even made man in the first place. I'm just going to clean up the mess by destroying everybody but one person and his family. That was Noah. And so God decided not to completely destroy his highest creation, humankind, but he decided on a pathway that would restore. So why would he do that? Number one, because he is holy. God is holy. 
Now, it means many things that say that God is holy. It means that God is separate from man. That's what the basic idea behind holy is. Holy is something that's been separated for God's use. And so God himself is holy. He is not like we are. And God as holy demands justice. And justice does not allow any sin to go unjustified or rectified or made right again. And so here was this deep hole of injustice. Here was this deep hole of that which is not right in God's sight. And because he is holy, he is also sovereign over all things. One of the ways to express the sovereignty of God is God can do anything he wants to do and nobody can say anything about it. And by definition, if God is holy and therefore he is sovereign, he can do nothing that is wrong. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but God doesn't make any mistakes. You know that? I mean, sometimes from the human standpoint, we say, God, you must have made a big mistake when you made me. I mean, just look at me. I mean, I'm not perfect in any way, and and I don't even like myself. How could other people like me? And I can't do this, and I can't do that. Listen, God didn't make any mistakes when he made you. You may be rebelling about how God made you. You may not have found yet where God wants you to be in this world and how God made you for certain things in this world. But God didn't make a mistake when he made you. He is holy. He is sovereign. He can do what he pleases. He doesn't make any mistakes. And here is the one that most people look at most of all. God is love. God is love. God loves you. God loves every person. How many times have you heard Billy Graham on television say this, God loves you? God has a plan for your life, and he does. And so because of God's holiness and sovereignty and because of his love for the people he created, God decided, made a decision to do something that would enable every person who will, every person who will come to him to be justified in his sight and to get it back, that which Adam lost. How did he do it? First of all, he worked through people through grace and faith. In Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What does it mean that Noah found grace? Does that mean Noah was not a sinner? Not at all. Noah was a sinner. But the fact that Noah found grace meant that God looked on him and said, you know, even though he has sinned, I have a heart for this guy, I love this guy, and I'm going to give him an opportunity for redemption. And how was it that he was redeemed? Through faith. How is it that people get saved today? Same way they got saved in the Old Testament, by grace, through faith. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, isn't it? By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast about it. And so grace was that God was willing to give us something that we didn't deserve. Faith is trusting, believing God, and acting on what he says. So one day God said to Noah, Noah, it's going to come a rain, it's going to come a big flood, and I want to save you and your family, so therefore you need to start building this boat. What did Noah do? started building a boat, right? And so because of God's willingness to work through people by grace and by faith, we're able to have a pathway to get it back. The next big thing we see in Scripture is that God established a covenant of law. God established a covenant with His people, the Jews, of law. 
God began to work through Noah. And the next person we see God working through was Abraham, known formerly as Abram. And out of Abraham's seed came the 12 tribes of Israel. And they became a numerous tribe of people in Egypt over a 400-year period. And then through the leadership of Moses, God got them freed from that slavery and set them on a journey to the promised land. But before they went very far, they met at Mount Sinai with God and they cut a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? People say, well, a covenant is just like a contract. Party A does this, party B does this, and therefore they both keep the agreements and the contract works. But that's not exactly the way it works. A covenant is when one party says, I will promise to do this for you, and you're supposed to do this in response. But a covenant means I'm going to do my part, whether you do your part or not. And uh, by the way, uh, that's what a marriage relationship should be too. Just a little note there in the side. You see, a marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. And the reason why so many marriages get in trouble is everybody expects they have to put in 50%. And you both put in 50% in the marriage and it makes 100%. Well, that's exactly wrong. You both have to put in 100%. That's right. And men, you're supposed to lead the process. And the husband is supposed to love his wife like Christ loved the church. He is supposed to be willing to lay his life down for her, and that takes a lot more than 50%, let me tell you. And the same is true of the wife. She's supposed to submit to her husband. And that takes a lot more than 50% too because sometimes she doesn't feel very submissive. But if the husband gives himself to his wife like Christ did for the church and is submissive to his wife, she would be a foolish person not to submit to a husband like that. Let me hear an amen from the guys. Amen. All right. I didn't hear anything from the ladies, but that's all right. We understand. We'll talk about that at a later date, Lord willing. And so here we find God creating this covenant, and this covenant basically said, okay, Israel, okay, people of God, here's how I want you to live. And in this covenant, God established a sacrificial atonement. The sacrificial atonement is a picture of what God was doing. In the sacrificial atonement, when the Israelites brought to God some kind of an offering, a sacrifice, a bull or a goat, or maybe it was a lamb, or maybe it was a pigeon, whatever the sacrificial animal was, it was a symbol that this animal's life is being taken from it as a substitute for my life being taken from me. And as I lay this animal before the Lord, he is accepting as payment for my sins the life of this animal. And it was all symbolic of the day when Jesus would come and be the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And that Jesus became the sacrifice that was celebrated at Easter time, the Passover time, as the one that takes away the sins of the world. And so God showed Israel this plan, this pattern in the covenant relationship, the sacrificial atonement process, and God fulfilled the law ultimately through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees more than one time, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to tear down the Ten Commandments. I came to fulfill the Ten Commandments. If the law says you're supposed to do this, I say to you, you should do that plus this much more. But not as a way to become righteous, but as a sign that you are 
righteous. And so here is God making a way, planning a process, working through a system so that all who desire to do so can get it back. All who want to walk in that freedom and that fellowship with God and that knowledge of God can find the path and can walk the pathway of righteousness before the Lord. So what is the result? What did God come to? How did God conclude this process? Well, it is through faith alone, in Christ alone, that a man, a woman, a child can be restored to it. Do you want to find that walk with God that is fully satisfying and completely fulfilling? It is through faith in Christ that you find it. There are a lot of people who offer substitute religions. And the substitute religions, which are the various religions of the world and the various human philosophies of the world, all involve some kind of something that a person must do in order to be saved. I was riding an airplane in India some years ago. I was on a mission trip, and we were traveling from one part of India to another part. We had ministry here. Now we're going to go have ministry here. And uh, I was seated by an Indian man. And, of course, uh, he didn't see too many Westerners and, and uh, not too many people that he see from the USA. So he asked me the first question, uh, where are you from? And I said, I'm from the United States. He said, oh, how do you like India? And, and everybody in India, they want to know, how do you like our country? What do you think of India? And so I told him, and I'm, I'm, I was fortunate he spoke English, and, and a lot of Indians speak English. It was the national language for a long, long time in India. And so uh, we finally got down to what I said to him about what I liked. And I said, you know, I find it true in India that everybody has religion. And he smiled. I said, oh, yes, we're a very religious country. We believe religions are good. And uh, you must understand that the majority religion in India is, uh, is Hinduism. And in Hinduism, there are many, many gods. I mean, millions, literally, of uh, gods. I mean, you, don't, you can't even figure out the names of all of them. But everybody has a God. Everybody worships something in India. And so I posed him this question. I said to him, in your religion, how can a person be forgiven of their sins? And it was almost like a new concept that he hadn't considered. He believes in reincarnation. He believes that he has to do really good in this life so that when he dies, he will be reincarnated to a higher form of life a better form of life. And if he keeps this up long enough and keeps getting better and better, eventually he'll be recreated into a place where he's in nirvana, or what we might even call heaven. And so ultimately, his religion believes you have to do good things and you have to keep your life pure and you have to hope that eventually God will smile on you and you'll just keep getting better and better and better and better. What do, the, what do the Muslims believe? Well, the Muslims have different principles that they live by. They have to pray five times a day. You have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca once at least in your lifetime. You have to do this. And all the Muslims have a system where you have to work your way into salvation. But you know what Christianity believes? None of us can save ourselves. We can't be good enough to be Christians. We can't be good enough for God to love us and forgive us. We have to come by grace 
and we come to grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace is where God gives us what we don't deserve, and faith means we trust God. What he says is true, and we live on that basis. And so God's plan begins with faith in Christ and in grace. And one can find through this process of grace and faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, full fellowship with God. Do you remember what it was like when you first became a Christian? Do you remember what it was like when you first realized that your sins were forgiven and now you were at peace with God and at one with God? You see, that's the joy that we have in Christianity. And sometimes we may lose that joy for various reasons, but it is what God gives us as a gift, not as a prize or as a reward for good behavior. It is simply his gift to us when we first believe, and he continues to give us that. We also have at our salvation a moral cleansing. Can you name any sin that God will not forgive of his children? The only unpardonable sin the Bible teaches is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you can't commit that sin. It's impossible. And those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit simply are those who say, hey, the Holy Spirit isn't convicting me of my sin. That's just some other thing. That's the devil. That's the world trying to make me feel guilty. And that person keeps denying the sufficiency of Jesus and keeps putting off the work of God. And that's the person who has committed the unpardonable sin. And so here we have moral cleansing. And every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit has been wiped away through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we have with him, with this, real freedom to live as God wants me to live. Let me give you a new definition of freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want to do, but it's the ability to do everything you should do. It's not being able to do anything you want to do anytime you want to do it, it is the ability to do everything you should do in order to be pleasing to God day by day. And so you know that at any moment of any day, you are right with God. You're in a right position with God. You're in full fellowship with him. And you're able to have with God this freedom, this access to the throne of grace. And there's never condemnation. There's always affirmation and renewal when we come to him. Here's what the Bible says in Colossians 1.27. I'm reading from the message translation. God wanted everyone, not just Jews, to know his rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background. The mystery in a nutshell is this. Christ is in you. Therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. So the question is now this. Do you have it? Do you have it? Have you discovered the sufficiency of Christ to give you the presence of God, the moral freedom, the joy, the sense of communication and communion with God? And if you don't have it, what stands in your way from getting it? By simply trusting the promises of God and acting on those promises. Let's bow for just a moment.
And as we bow, would you just stand with me? You know, I never want to preach a gospel message without inviting people to come to know Jesus Christ. And I'm fairly convinced that many of you here today in, in this congregation, you know Christ. You've had an experience where you trusted him and he came into your life. But it's just possible that someone here today has never trusted Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. You may be a good person or a religious person. You may be a member of this church. But is it possible that you never really trusted what Jesus said when he said, come unto me, all you are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? You've never taken at face value what John 3.16 says, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's very simple. If in your heart you want Jesus Christ to come into your life, why don't you ask him to do that? Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. I know I don't deserve your forgiveness. But on the basis of what the scripture teaches, will you come into my heart now and take control of my life, forgiving me of all my sins and make me a Christian. Give me the it that Adam lost. You see, a prayer like that in all sincerity is what God is waiting for from you. And he takes it from there and leads you and guides you in this life. And maybe you are a Christian, those of you who are Christians this morning. And you say, well, I know I'm saved. I had an experience with God. I believe if I died, I'd go to heaven today. Well, are you living it? We fall short daily sometimes. And so we, we have to trust God to keep cleansing us and to keep building us up and to keep strengthening us. And he will do that. He will do it day by day, moment by moment, as you look to him. So, Lord, we pray that for those of us who believe, those of us who have trusted Jesus, that you'll help us now to, to trust you for cleansing, confessing our sins, and looking to do those good works that you've placed here for us to do. We ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.